I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Morning, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Jason, so I wanted, what sparked this thought is um, I saw recently that I think it was wood and metal had recently skyrocketed in price. It was like five times. Wood for sure. Yeah. And you would would know (laughs) with uh, working on the cabinetry side um, had skyrocketed like five times or something ridiculous. And I started to think about how our world our society has increasingly become more globalized and um globalization in general so to define it for those that may not be entirely clear what globalization is it's basically defined as the process uh, by which businesses and other organizations develop international influence or start operating on an international scale now, with the advancements in technology, internet, and our connectedness through the internet, everybody has to basically start thinking on a global scale because it bleeds out everywhere. Everything we do, like I used to work for a firm that, you know, we did a lot of work in China and uh, sure. the Middle East and um, all these different places. So we were immediately connected in that sense. So you have to understand a lot of different nuances of how certain cultures operate what's bad there's like uh 
certain things with feng shui that we had to be aware of. You can't have the corner of a house pointing at another house. And there's all these different elements that you have to understand the economy. And there's like so much that comes from that. So I wanted to do this on two fronts. One, let's talk sort of, we'll talk on an architectural sense and some things um, that I am aware of. And then we'll talk construction. And then on the other side of that, just more generally talk about sort of how do you approach a globalized mindset for your firm? Where do you want to start? Probably general, I guess. Yeah, I guess that probably makes the most sense, right? Yeah. So, um, so when we think in a general sense, just to sort of prime this, uh, like I mentioned, you have to think about how you're setting up your firm how you're training your staff and things that uh, you and your staff need to understand. Some areas to consider in, in prepping for this, you have to make sure your, your staff is uh, technically adept, creative thinkers, analytic problem solvers, and broadly knowledgeable in a lot of different things. Um, that's, that's a lot for an average like staff member. I mean, like, so I'm having a pissy morning. <laughs> Um, critical thinking, problem solving, analytical. Yeah. Those are not <laughs> mid-level like worker bees. You follow me? Yeah. And this goes into a conversation I had with a teammate yesterday where it's like, that's really like the top two or 3% that can do those things. Yeah. So when we're talking about like setting up staff, like, like that's the couple like, you know, executives or managers or whatever that are primarily thinking that way that then have to like push that down to the rest of the group, you know what I mean? And give them the playbook basically. Yeah. So that's kind of a funny statement because that's not even close. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's my opinion. But anyway, but yes, in order to be like, to be effective in that space, you have to be problem solving. You have to be a critical thinker um, to set it up for the rest of the team to then follow that play, I think. Yeah. And and I think that comes to you. It's, there's a lot of pressure on, um, hiring at that point and who you're talking to and who you're bringing into the team. Um, there's a ton of pressure on that front. So again, you have to, <laughs> you, yeah. So then the next one, uh, you're going to look for lifelong learners that are culturally and ethically aware. <laughs> Again, that's being conscious of that we're not all the same. People are going to have different cultural norms, um, different practices, and you have to be willing to accept and be comfortable with that and be capable of going outside of yourself to learn about other cultures and, um, and their practices. Communicate multiculturally and demonstrate such skills able to deal with multidisciplinary problems, able to manage uncertainties, exhibit leadership skills among multidisciplinary and intercultural teams, exhibit entrepreneurial spirit. That's another one that's going to be super hard to find. No foreign language, extremely difficult to find. But like we... At one of my past friends, we actually had, for those places that we practice, we had someone on staff that uh, spoke English and whatever that, you know, that language was that we work with. And they were usually like a um, 
business background, but if you can find someone that is in your focus, that's even better, I think, than a business background because there's a lot of technical language that that we have um, that makes another hurdle. Where's this article coming from? It's just a paper that was written uh, by a professor of construction. Ah, there's why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's like a white paper from a professor. So what's interesting is, um, I I know I talked about a long time ago, there was that MFCEO podcast or whatever. Um, Long time ago, definitely more my my speed, right? Um, And and it's thus changed. I think it's called uh, Real AF. But anyways, there's a couple episodes that I save, Mm -hmm. right? Um, that I listen to every once in a while. One one is about competition, and the other one there's there's a really good one. It's called it, I think the title is Three Types of People, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and it's like everything's made up of three three types of people, and it breaks it down, and you can literally like, you know, again, it 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 matches a lot what I think. That's probably why you know um, I side with it. But it talks about the, you know the top one or two percent, which is everything you just described, mm-hmm. right? You know, critical thinkers, you know, being able to problem solve. Um, having leadership qualities, you know, all those other kind of things. And there's like middle management. And it's like, what it basically says is the top 1% of the people that can recognize a problem that can create a solution and then like define the steps of how to take care of it. Right. Yeah. The, the, the second tier of individuals is people that like uh, can recognize a problem. Don't really know how to do a solution, but you can give, you can give them a list mm-hmm. and they can follow the list really, really well and, and take care of it. Right. And the third type of people is one that really can't recognize problems, aren't interested in doing that you can give them a list, but you have to like double check them, you know what I mean? And make sure they're doing those types of things. And the vast majority of people, I think fall in that secondary section. Right. And some have the ability to make it a little bit further and do those types of things, whatever. But I think it's the top two or 3%. I I, I'm increasing it to 3%. Mm -hmm. Um, That top two or 3% that can really do all those things that were just described. So um, I think that is the biggest issue with globalization. And a lot of this type of stuff is most of the companies don't have the bandwidth available, you know, intellect wise or um, skill wise to be able to effectively manage that. And hell, I, I would argue most businesses like we, we all, including myself, struggle with being able to, even though I can do a majority of the things that were being described there to get the rest of the team. That's why I'm so frustrated this morning on a couple of things, but get the rest of the team like, come on, like, you know, one plus two is three. You know what I mean? Like get to that, get to the three, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And um, you have to ask those like prodding questions. And that is by far the most limiting situation you're going to run into, right? That's going to hinder your ability to get into, you know, to really play in that globalized market. Yeah. You know, I would, what I would tell you though, is you can, you can partner with strategic vendors, like have strategic relationships with vendors, right? So I don't, so I'm not going to go buy direct from a, you know, a wood supply you know, manufacturer, I'm going to buy from generally a middleman or whatever it is that, that then, you know, hopefully is going and doing the things that you're talking about from a sourcing perspective, um, where it's like, look, it makes sense. And that's why, like, that's what like key lumber buys are for a lot of the builders. Right. So instead of the trade doing the key lumber buys, cause they're so small, they've left it up to the builder at that point, or at least the builders recognize and said, Hey, let's throttle all of our horsepower together and make big lumber buys when we think the market's good for that and whatever else. So I think if you partner with a lot of the right vendors or partners, um, you can take, you can kind of, I don't remember what it is, but it can almost be like a force multiplier. You can take advantage of their expertise in that regard. So maybe you don't have to hire it necessarily in house. Get in their tailwind. Yeah. So I think, I think that probably helps. And you, and then that allows 
the few people that um, are those critical thinkers or whatever in the company to focus on that portion of it Mm -hmm. and working with those strategic vendors and allowing the rest of the group to just do the manual tasks of, of purchasing and this and that based off of whatever you've set up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's globalization is hard for most small to medium sized companies. True. Very true. You know what I mean? You have to be a really large company with a lot of buying power to really, you know, uh, to really sink your teeth into that, that idea um, to have enough weight in the market. You know, at least that's, that's, that's my, that's how I look at it. That's my opinion. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think um, you're right. A larger firm or company would structure top to bottom this way, uh, thinking in this mindset. So how, how do you locate that person, that, that middleman? How did you locate that middleman? The, the vendor, like our partner, yeah. our supplier. Um, I mean, is it sort of word of mouth that you yeah, heard? Yeah, I mean, primarily, so like people in industry, so like when we were um, really on the cabinet side, right? Because it's like raw materials, you know what I mean? To a certain degree, right? So you're buying your, your sheets and you're buying, you know, stock and, and those types of things. And in our situation, one, we had somebody that had been in the industry for quite some time, so had some vendor relationships, right? Um, but then the old thing that comes in, and then I had, um, some relationships with some higher up guys and some other companies that kind of said, Hey, talk to this guy, talk to that guy, but then you vet it, right? Because there's multiple ones out there. Like, you know, the wonderful thing to your point about the internet, you type in, you know, um, you know, plywood, right. You're going to get all these different suppliers and whatever that come into it. Um, so I think when you look at it that way, you can then go out to a couple of different companies at that point and say, Hey, here's what we're looking for. Here's what our volume looks like. Right. Um, you know, what would the pricing be? And some of these guys will send it back for the square foot or for the sheet or whatever it is. And you can literally start picking from there. Yeah. And then you look at, you know, do they have a floor stock program for you? Right. So do I want to spend a little bit more money up front because I have a fear that the cost of this stuff is going to go up and say, look, I, I will, I will commit to buying X amount of sheets or whatever truckloads per month. Mm-hmm. Um, but I need you to stock this and I'll pre, you know, pre buy, you know what I mean? Like you're basically doing it almost like on credit, right? Yeah pre-buy a year in advance or six months in advance or whatever. So that's where those, those couple critical thinkers, right. Which in this situation is not me. I've got a, a buddy here. That's great with the numbers. You know what I mean? Like far better than I am mm-hmm. and say, Hey, let's take a look at this. Here's my volume that I'm expecting. Here's this and that what pencils out the best you work on that. Let me work on the relationship part. You work on that. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then between him and I, and one other individual, you're able to kind of sort out what makes the most sense for the company um, from a risk management standpoint, as far as cash outlay and those types of things to inventory control and overall like market, um, temperament. Right. Um, so you don't get hit by the fluctuations because to your point, like a lot of wood has just skyrocketed and there's going to be a shortage in MDF product, um, because of issues with the epoxy and different things that are going on right now. So if you don't already have some of those agreements in place, you know, it, it could be a big issue. Yeah really, really quickly. And so, but with those vendors that we use, they're the ones that are going to the, the global market and trying to source it from either Canada Well, right now Canada screwed. So then they're trying to pull it from Brazil, you know what I mean? Like different kind of things like that. And you just kind of jump on, I think you said their wagon or whatever it is and let them do that work because that's their expertise space. You know what I mean? And come back and say, here's the best we can do. And if we feel that that's good enough, great. And it hits our marks. If not, then we go check with somebody else. Yeah. And, and one of the things on the architecture side that we really see in this globalization thing is uh, outsourcing CAD work. So we, we've done a lot of work 
in the past, or I've done a lot of work where I was coordinating with people in Mexico, Philippines, uh, China to do renderings and uh, a lot of CAD work. So the weird thing or the unfortunate thing about that is it also is because uh, it gets extremely cheap compared to labor here. That puts a lot of pressure on our labor market, which is a I don't want to get into that whole thing, but that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh but that's another part of this globalization element is uh staffing, which is, you know, another part to to consider. Just to finish up this list, uh next one was know how to translate research uh to market. So, you know, our markets are going to vary from country to country, so understanding what something means in one market to another and how those are connected exercise ethics that express professionalism flexibility and mobility uh, be literate in global competence and cross-cultural sensitivity so that goes back um well and this is from a professor again yeah <laughs> so sorry so i'm gonna knock you know a lot of this stuff right here because i even got tossed out of a class when i was in college from a career-long professor that was trying to tell me how to run business right uh -huh. and um so i think a lot of these things like if you're like like let's say you're an entrepreneur and you're deciding to go into a space and you're like i want to be part of whatever and you're reading all this mm -hmm. you're gonna die you know what i mean like you're gonna freak out because you're like there's no way i'm capable of doing these things you know what i mean like all this stuff i've got to have you know five different languages to operate in the space i want to be in i have to be literate you know literate in the global economy like all this like there's no way right and i think we need to realize there's a reason why so many people like have expertise in different businesses. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you go find those experts. You don't have, like, I think the first part of that was you, you want to hire on these people or whatever it is. Right. Well, maybe we take the term hire and just say, look, you, you need to partner with. So whether you're hiring people in-house, right. As employees, or you're coming to agreements with partners, like I was saying before, to do some of these things, it's not all about just hiring and whatever. It's about just creating that network. So whether it's a mix of individual associates inside, plus other partners you have outside, that's what you need to look at doing, but don't try and do it all yourself. Like you need to find partners that are experts in those areas. If that's really where you want to go play ball. I mean, cause that sounds daunting as hell the way it's being described. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe it's my delivery. I don't think, I don't think he's like trying to say that one person has to do all of this, but it's a mindset in approaching a, a global market and playing to be able to play in a global market. So it's not that your entire staff has to be up to this level or, you know, the person at the top has to be all of these things. It's more of a mindset in getting into a global market and understanding there's certain segments of your company that are going to have to do certain things and be, be able to excel in certain areas. So I, I don't want people to, to look at this as like a daunting thing with technology where we've come so far. Uh, you can much easily take advantage of some of the things that you mentioned of partnering with people. Uh, jump on Google, like you said. Um, there's lots of people in networks that you can jump into that, you know, are happy to jump in here. Uh, like we partnered with, there was a, person in china who was a, a point a point person that had all these connections throughout china he lived there and basically opened a air quote office in china um it was i don't even know if there was a real office or if it was out of his house but you know you can find these connections with people 
through research, through talking to other people and build these links and start to create this network. Um, so I, I don't, I don't want people to feel like this is a daunting thing because if you intend to grow to a global scale, you have to get there somehow. And to me, the two biggest parts are that connection and then the willingness to be culturally and ethically open and, uh, aware and I think that's where some companies tend to falter uh, because they are not aware of all the cultural sensitivity and yeah. there's like a lot of that conversation yeah. right now so people are trying yeah. to get uh, get up to speed on that but that's another huge hurdle is not doing things that offend other cultures yeah, so because especially in America we tend to be more American focused and not think that way. So uh, I think we've ex exhausted this topic within the range that we can. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm a super pissy this morning. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's been a day. Already. Uh, so if you are, if you happen to be listening to this and are a global expert or know someone that is and want to continue this conversation uh, beyond what we've talked about today, reach out to us. Hello at spacespodcast.com. Otherwise, we will get back with you on Tuesday for another episode of Express. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. 
from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.